and welcome to Outrage and Optimism. I'm Tom Rivett Karnak. I'm Christiana Pierce. And I'm Paul Dickinson. This week, in our last episode of the year, we look back on the year that was 2021, what we achieved, what's still to do, and we cast our minds forward to the next crucial year, next year, that's got to be just as momentous as the one that's just gone. Plus, we bring you an interview with the Right Honourable Lord Zach Goldsmith about what happened on nature at COP26, and we have music from Callum Beatty. Thanks for being here. So, can hardly believe another year has gone. Uh, it's been such fun to continue to do this podcast and observe the world as it passes by and becomes ever more critical. Paul, you want to come in? Happy holidays to you. Happy holidays to you. Happy holidays, dear listeners. Happy holidays to you. <laughs> Yay! I kind of felt like we were going to get through to the, the end of the year without another episode, outbreak of that. But thank you very much, Paul. That was lovely. Uh, hasn't been many much carol singing this year. For those around the world in other countries, the UK, where both Paul and I am, is currently experiencing uh, a pretty intense moment of COVID surge with the Omicron variant, but hope very much it doesn't come to your countries as well, because we seem to be, history seems to be repeating itself right now. Well, hold on. I mean, Omicron is not actually yet making that many people ill. It could be a kind of, you know, could be kind of inoculating us. I mean, I, you know, I, I hope I'm right. Right. Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of mixed data on it. But 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 rather than getting into potential conspiracy theories about coronavirus, which I don't think is why people join this particular podcast, um, let's look back at 2021. It's interesting to reflect back a full year ago. One of the things that I remembered as I started thinking about preparations for this podcast is it's less than a year since the US rejoined the Paris Agreement. A year ago, Trump was still in the White House. So it is incredible how quickly time passes and how much changes in short periods of time. So let's just start by looking back. Christiana, anything to share on the year that's just gone? Well, as you say, it really honestly has been such a relief uh, <laughs> not to have him in the Oval <laughs> Office. I cannot uh, even express the relief of Twitter, for example. Yeah, your, oh. your famous jumping around that a quarter of a million people saw the day that you realized that yes, he was Yes, thank out. you, Tom. Very much appreciate <laughs> that um, public total la lack of decorum you're, on my part. You're welcome. Um, yeah, really appreciate it. But in addition to that, I wanted to add two things that, um, that really marked the year. Certainly the, um, the publication of the, most, of the most severely worded scientific assessment report that we've ever seen. The IPCC. Mirrored interest in, yeah, the IPCC, mirrored interestingly by the COP26 decisions that also had the most um, severely worded decisions. So I thought that was an interesting, uh, an interesting wording. And then I don't know how many people were aware of the campaign that was launched several years ago to get the IEA to really focus on 1.5 and on moving beyond fossil fuels. And this was the year. Yeah, This was the year in which they finally uh, agreed to put 1.5 degrees as their central scenario and came up with very clear uh, wording on there is no more room for oil and gas. There is no more room. When they mean no more room, they mean atmospheric room, right? We just yeah. don't have it in the carbon budget 
to uh, to drill any more for coal or to explore any more for oil and gas. And um, so I, I'm honestly really hoping again that this is a pivotal year that uh, that we will now see more and more responses, both on the part of companies as well as on the part of governments to move beyond fossil fuels. Yeah, no, I, I call it that, Christiana. I think this Trump thing, let's just spend another moment on it. I mean, because, you know, arguably one of the biggest problems in climate change since Paris was the election of Trump. And then I got very concerned, you know, with the storming of the Capitol on the 6th of January. Um, and I think a lot of people um, on the right of politics are flirting with kind of suspending elections. You know, Trump's been querying the elections and, and people can't stand up. And uh, I mean, you know, this this is something that a lot of people are writing about in the newspapers. But I want you just to try and remember, I don't know if you all saw, but straight after the inauguration of President Biden, there was a very unusual little bit of film where um, former presidents Clinton, Bush and Obama sort of stood together at a COVID distance and spoke to the nation to say, we need to respect elections, right? And it was a very unusual thing to happen after inauguration, right? Hmm. Well, the reason I mention this is because people are continuing to talk about, like, what is the risk to our democracies? Um, and, you know, I, I think people have to recognize how serious it is when the rule of law gets suspended, when there are no when elections are suspended, you know, and there's a kind of, you know, kind of one party rule. You know, all these, you know, all these climate plans go out the window. Probably the stock market value, in a sense, becomes worthless because everyone kind of loses their money to the dictator. So people are not taking that seriously. But. Christiana, I had also prepared a little bit before this. Can I just make I a think- quick point on that democracy piece? And then we should come back to you, Paul. And I also want to comment on what Christiana said. But I thought it was very interesting last week that there were two democracy summits, one in Washington and one in Beijing, where both leaders set out their vision of democracy for the future. And what was interesting was that Xi, Jin- Xi Jinping in Beijing was using the term democracy to describe one party rule that is responsive to polling of the needs of the electorate or citizenry, and then responding to that in policy terms and making a direct challenge to the idea of democratically elected governments by claiming that what they were doing was representing the needs of the people better because democratically elected governments end up flip-flopping from one side to the other. So there's nothing I want to say other than just noting that and just pointing out that this is shaping up to be an increasingly intense battleground between different ideologies as we go forward into the future. Because I thought that was a really interesting watershed moment. But Paul, back to your point. No, no, follow up. Both under... Both both under the roof of democracy. You're both claiming the terminology. Yeah, exactly. The title of democracy. Yeah. 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 yeah I mean, all I was on climate change, what I was going to say was I agree this IEA thing was instrumental with the extreme weather. But back at you, Tom, on this particular point, look, when the Berlin Wall fell in 1989 and then when China joined the WTO in 2001, there's not really been a political alternative to this sort of say, free market economy. And therefore, there isn't really a competition between ideologies anymore. Um, And so, you know, all sorts of people can come forward and sort of say this is democracy. But I think, you know, many of us associate democracy primarily with a free press. I mean, we had quite a good discussion last week, a very good discussion, actually, I think, with Jennifer Morgan about whether outrage and optimism should specifically platform um, chief executives of oil companies. But, you know, I don't think anyone, you know, really thinks that we should 
you know, kind of like allow the government to decide exactly who speaks and who doesn't. Because I think the problem with that is you don't have checks and balances then. And we mustn't get confused about, you know, some really important tenets of protecting citizens that that, that are associated with what uh, Karl Popper called the open society mm. and its enemies. Mm. No, I think this is clearly going to be one of the determinant factors of the coming years and an, in, an, an area of enormous risk for all of us, right, as that ideology becomes more flexible and arguably as democratically elected governments, as we tend to think about them, arguably are not delivering the first duty of government and keeping the people safe, right? So as a result of that, there's bound to be some threat to that ideology. I just want to bring it back down another level of specificity and go back to what you talked about, Christiana. And actually, you described there two really interesting moments in the year, which was the IPCC report and the IEA report, both of which moved us forward intellectually and provide the basis for action. But I also, I'm just going to quote back to you something you said in one of our very first episodes of the year. And you said, um, I'm very excited about this year moving beyond the Trump administration, looking forward to COP26. And one of the key pieces that I think is very exciting is that the Cinderella of this whole climate action, which is everything to do with land use, food systems and deforestation, is now ripe for expansion at last. And I just like to say kudos where it's due. That was prophetic. That has really, I think, in terms of action, been the story of the year. Would you agree? Well, I would agree that it's the story of the year. Um, yes, I was actually quite surprised to to note um, that we had looked at that at the beginning of the year. But it's been a long time coming, honestly, yeah. right? Before we celebrate that it's finally there, uh, I think we should also be just a tad concerned that it took that long. Yeah. Uh, but on the positive side, on the positive side, Yes, I do think that whole area uh, and what we call the Cinderella, it's very interesting to me that for such a long time, we collectively, the UN institutionally, has actually done such a deeply studied, carefully designed um, approach to separate those things. I mean, we have to really look at this. We have a whole UN Convention for Climate Change. We have a whole UN Convention for Biodiversity. We have a whole UN Convention for Desertification. And there are some that would want to create a whole UN Convention for Oceans. Really? Yeah. I mean, when you think about it, right? It's when when yeah. nature, well, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. Yes, we understand that this, you know, each of those are very complex and that in order to get our heads around it, perhaps it was necessary to sort of parse out those pieces. But um, when you think about it, either from the perspective of Mother Nature, she is just laughing her head off at us that we think that these things are separate and not intimately intertwined. But also think about it from the perspective of small countries who are therefore forced to have attention to these three different international processes and hence also domestic processes. And they're looking at each other going, oh, well, are, isn't all of this actually part of the same? So yes, finally we're there, but we're a long, long way from recognizing the two, the true integration of all of this. Yeah. No, I completely, and, and our, our guest today will delve more into that because Zach Goldsmith was fundamentally, you know, a central part of what happened and the reason why forests and nature became so integrated into COP. So we'll come back to that. But Paul, 
You know, I mean, we'll, we'll go to Zach soon, but I, I want to I want to also kind of, we've talked a lot in the podcast about all the things that are happening. We did unpack the kind of cop, but I would like to just mention that I think there's been a big mood change in what I would call the global business system. Um, I think people kind of accept now we're going to do it. Like we may not do it in time, but I think the mood has completely changed. I, I remember the years ago I was involved in uh, the kind of um, promotion of this Eurotunnel, this big tunnel. They were worried that it wouldn't really get built. And the phrase was uh, the French, uh, was, it was sans du, no doubt. But then it got changed to sans accondu, without any doubt. And I think that the world is in a without any doubt situation now. So I'm going to give you one example from a world I know quite well, which is carbon calculation. There has been hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars going into companies that are developing digital solutions to help corporations decarbonize. I mean, yes, it's food systems. We've talked about nature, but they're in multiple sectors now. We're starting to see this kind of great awakening, I would call it. And I think to me, that was the story of 2021. Yeah, I hear that. I also, I think you say that's without any doubt. I actually think this has also been the year in which doubt has re-emerged in a serious way, right? It's the, it's the year that trust has collapsed between are people serious about what they're saying and there's been doubting about serious intent on the part of both countries and companies, which has been an interesting evolution. I know that's not quite what you mean when you make that. No, no, point. I yeah. do. I, I agree with yeah. you, actually. I think before there was a doubt on intent. I don't think there's any doubt on intent now. There's a doubt on the seriousness yeah, yeah, of yeah. the intent. But Does I kind of see that as progress. Yeah. I'm not sure if it's a doubt on the intent. Sorry, I think it's a doubt on the execution, yeah. on the exactly. implementation. Yeah, exactly. um, I think there and there, there's a lot of space for that uh, and and. And understandably so, because we've never done this before. And most of us are still trying to figure out how on earth are we going to do this? And there are those who are looking at that doubt or or that conundrum of execution and going, well, you know, forget about the complexities, just get the darn thing done. Yeah. Because we're running out of time. So that's understandable. Yeah, but I was listening to a hedge fund program on my favorite radio station, Resonance FM, uh, called The Naked Short Club. Hedge fund managers talking on an arts radio station. You might ask why, but where else would they be? Um, and, uh, and playing also the music of Gong, strange people from the 1960s. But the point of my story is hedge fund managers now are increasingly talking about the fact that this is just going to happen. There's going to be huge changes. Um, someone called uh, Jun Ma, who was former chief economist of the People's Bank of China, was saying China might spend 5% of its GDP every year for the next 30 years on this. That's crazy money. But the forces of the world will gather and reorganize behind that kind of commitment. And of course, it can be an enormous engine of economic growth, not the growth that leads to pollution, trash and misery, but the growth that leads to construction of safe infrastructure. Got to notice the difference between the two. So we're going to go to the conversation with Zach in a minute. One thing I just want to mention, because I mean, I, I think looking back at this period of time, there'll be so many moments of realization like this, but I do think that the heat dome that happened over North America yeah. this year, where temperatures in Canada reached 125 degrees, um, you know, areas that are normally 30 degrees cooler than that were all of a sudden transported into totally unprecedented situations. I remember seeing a picture, a billion marine creatures died on the coasts of um, the Pacific Northwest. I remember seeing a picture of this rocky shoreline covered in mussels and all the mussels have been cooked in their shells, it's been 120 degrees on the rocks. To me, 
that was such a terrifying moment. And I think it just really, you can't say that it did more than other terrifying moments that we had, but I think it had a, it pierced people's consciousness of what's really yeah. happening here in a new way. Um, and I think that actually we might look back, who knows, on this year as the moment that we kind of really realised something serious was going on with the climate and uh, and it was affecting us. So that was a really big moment for me this year. And and landed the 1.5 as a ceiling temperature. Yeah. I yeah, mean, yeah. no other year has really landed that, despite the fact that we've had that report from the IPCC since 2018. It took us three years to land that and to get really across the board agreement that that is going to have to be the ceiling in temperature. And I mean, what we you could have said, three years is way too long. Um, on the other hand, it's pretty remarkable that that has switched. Yeah. Yes, it from is. two yeah. degrees to 1.5. Yeah, absolutely. And that's now very much enshrined as a threshold in, in the outcome from Glasgow, which is which is a huge step forward. So unless mm. either of you have anything to add, we'll go to the interview. Uh, so today we are very privileged to bring you the last in our series on COP26 and what came out of it. And we've been saving this one for you because it's a great one. And it's about, as we said earlier, one of the great stories of this year, which is what happened on nature, how we move further forward and how important that is for all of our shared endeavours. And there's nobody better than Zach Goldsmith to talk about it. Uh, Zach Goldsmith sits in the House of Lords. He is a minister in the Conservative What's government. the House of Lords, Tom? It sounds a little <laughs> Why don't you insane. explain it? Why don't you explain it, Paul? Yeah. Oh, right. So actually, <laughs> you don't know. Well, fair enough. So people who are not from the UK, you know, we've got like a queen and all this kind of sort of slightly old, oldie worldy stuff. Well, alongside our elected representatives, we have like a, a, a place of unelected representatives. And if you think that's just kind of like lords that were appointed by kind of kings and, and queens in the past, you're probably right, actually. Um, although they've recently been elevating people to the Lords, um, who were former politicians. And of course, uh, Zach Goldsmith was indeed a member of parliament and a politician. So it's a kind of, it's a second chamber with a slightly idiosyncratic British history, which I wouldn't say is necessarily, is probably more your kind of Beijing democracy than your your, your kind of mother of democracy, Westminster <laughs> democracy. I'm sure everyone's clear now. I mean, it's basically, think of it like the Senate, but not elected, it's appointed. But they, But it's not so much hereditary. But they're, anymore, they're, right? they're and also, kind of ironing that out because they kind of worked out that like people who were like born into passing laws, it's not exactly what you might call 21st it, century. It is strange. And also the House of Lords has to pass legislation, but if they refuse to pass it, the House of Commons can override the Lords. So there's very strange um, peculiarities. And in women in the House of Lords, are they, are they Lords? Uh, they're ladies. Well, why is it not called the House of Lords and Ladies then? Good point. I, it's a Thank very you, good question. Christian. There very you go. Yeah. Right. All right. Let us not allow this discussion to distract from the fact that Zach Goldsmith is a hugely important person, a minister in the government. He is the Minister for the Pacific and International Environment and really has ended up being the person who has led on everything to do with nature and forests at COP26. And I have to say, from sort of being inside the echo chamber to some degree, he just drove this agenda forward. He was like, I'm going to make this COP about nature as well as other things, and I'm going to drive it forward. He was personally engaged. He has been involved in this agenda his entire life. 
Um, the, the ecologist magazine that he was involved in from a young age that was started by his uncle, uh, that he sort of took further forward. He's been involved in the radical end of environmentalism. As he's gotten older, he's kind of tacked into the establishment and ended up becoming a minister. And I have to say, I just think he's he's a huge force for of, of energy for transformation, particularly on the nature agenda. So here is Zach. Uh, please enjoy it. And we'll be back afterwards with a bit more conversation. Mr. Zach Goldsmith, thank you so much for joining us on Outrage and Optimism. I think uh, most people would agree that one of the most exciting results of COP26 was the Glasgow Declaration on Forest and Land Use Agreement that came out and has now been signed by 141 countries covering 90% of forest cover around the world. Quite remarkable. I would say a year ago, we certainly did not think that that was going to be possible. So uh, kudos for your efforts in getting us there. I know it was the work of many, many people, uh, but your hand was on the tiller the whole time. So thank you very much for that. And at the same time, Minister, I think you must have heard as we came out of COP26 that if there was one asset that was missing from COP26, according to some, is trust. And mm. so how how would you, from the perspective of the Declaration on Forests and Land Use, how would you see that we can build to, honestly, to recuperate trust that we've lost across all of the climate issues, including uh, nature-based solutions? I think, well, first of all, thank you very much um, for, for those kind words. But look, I totally agree with that. And, and, and like anyone who's been involved in these issues for any amount of time, and, and I've been involved for as far back as I remember, um, trust is an issue. And, and for those people who are skeptical of the pledges and the commitments that were made, they are, I think, uh, they are skeptical for very good reason. Pledges have come and gone. Targets have been set and been missed. Um, yes. So what we tried to do is to create a, a, an ecosystem of commitments, each one of which would reinforce the other. And so we can't guarantee, of course, that, that the commitments that were made are going to be honoured. But because of the manner in which those commitments fit together, I think it's much more likely that they'll be honoured, much harder for countries or, or businesses to not under them. So, for example, you mentioned uh, the Glasgow Declaration, which is 141 countries representing 90% of the world's forests. That is in and of itself a good thing, clearly. Uh, and and, it, and I didn't think we'd get that many countries over the line. Indeed, the day before COP began, we didn't have that many countries over the line. There were quite a few that were holding back exactly, and simply not exactly. engaging at all. But, but the reason some of those reluctant countries came on board was twofold. One, it was the finance that we came up with, um, mostly public sector, but also some really big new philanthropic players, not least the Bezos Earth Fund. And combined, we secured a commitment of nearly $20 billion to protect forests. So that also was very, very helpful in terms of getting some of those countries over the line. But even more important than that were the signals that we got from the private sector. So when the 12 biggest buyers 
suppliers of commodities. And bearing in mind, commodity production is the main reason by far that forests are being cut down and land is being degraded. When we got those 12 buyers to commit to align their buying practices, not just with one and a half degrees, but with our deforestation goals as well, then those reluctant countries realized they didn't really have anywhere to go. When we had the same commitment from the multilateral development banks, including the World Bank, that they'd align with Paris and nature, and then the financial institutions beyond that, sitting on assets worth nearly $9 trillion, it, it just, each part of the, the puzzle, if you like, reinforced the other. And, and mm. I think that as, as long as we use this year well, and this year is as probably more important than last year uh, for the UK as presidents of COP, then I think we can tie those players down so that those commitments are honoured. But we've got a lot of work to do. Well, and we were we were just talking to Minister Alok Sharma um, uh, a while ago, and we're so delighted that there is a commitment on his part, on your part, on, on the UK government's part to follow through, because usually what COP presidents do is they deliver the COP and then goodbye, they're gone. Uh, and uh, the fact that the UK is actually staying the course and ensuring that there is follow-up is actually very, very welcome and will contribute to that very important trust building. But I did want to invite you to just go one level deeper into um, your recognition of the very important role of the private sector or large corporations. Because it seems to me from an observer's point of view that at this COP26, we had two buckets of attention that sprang up and that might collide with each other unless we're really smart about how we bring them together. One bucket is this amazing attention that is harvested in the Declaration of Forests and Land Use, amazing attention for a COP that is a climate change COP, the first time that I remember in decades that there was so much attention and so much commitment to responsible stewardship of forests and land. So a very exciting, I would say, a very exciting um, commitment or series of commitments there, as you have explained. However, on the other side, in another bucket, I have never heard as many voices of concern about the use of that funding from private sector going into forest protection mm. or reforestation or land restoration and that being used as offsets. Now, me, a big CDM person, I'm pretty used to that. I'm pretty used to, uh, to corporations investing into mitigation activities, whether they're industrial, energy, or land-based, and using it against their compliance commitments. But it seems to me that we have hit a, I'm not sure if it's a wall, but we've definitely hit a big question mark that is out there about the validity, the credibility um, of using these very important investments as offsets. And yeah. I'm really concerned yeah. about that, Minister, because if they can't use them as offsets, I wonder where the funding is going to come from. So those corporations that you spoke to and that want to commit to net zero and to stopping deforestation, do you see them linking these two things as offsets or do you see them as two 
separate and complementary commitments on the part of the corporations? So uh, I think they they must be inextricably linked and seem to be inextricably linked. The, the, the more we learn, the more we realize that there is no believable pathway to net zero or one and a half degrees that does not involve massive efforts around protecting and restoring nature. You know, technology is a wonderful thing and the technological transition is happening. We can make it and we must make it happen quicker. But the... the but, Technology will never be a substitute for natural systems. You only have to compare, you know, mangroves with concrete defenses. Mangroves, when they're planted, they cost very little to plant. They last forever. They sequester carbon. They provide breeding ground for deep sea fish. They protect coastal communities from storm surges. They provide fuel for people. They just, the benefits go on and on and on. Whereas concrete defenses just do one of those things, and that's to protect the communities from storm surge and quite often not very well. So it, it feels to me that 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 nature had to be at the center of our climate discussions that yep. was my personal ambition for cop and 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 i and i think you know I succeeded there, succeeded but, it, but well it certainly it certainly moved we certainly moved it from the very margins to the the, the center of the discussion so i yep. i hope we get away from that separation between nature on the one hand and climate on the other but i do understand the concerns and i think it's incumbent upon us to ensure that the fears that people have are not materialized and so when we talk about carbon markets it's critically important that we put as much emphasis on the high integrity projects that the companies are investing in or that, that others are investing in as with the companies themselves. So for companies to be credibly uh, uh, and authentically taking part in this process, putting money into protecting or restoring nature, they need first to demonstrate a commitment to science-based reductions in their own portfolios, in their own activities. So this can't be an, a, 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 it can't in any way supplement or replace uh, those that, that's really serious, gritty business of reducing emissions. It needs to be additional to that. Um, because there are companies that are not going to get to net zero tomorrow. They just can't do it. There are, and there are many, many sectors where that's true. But as long as there are very clear pathways that they've signed up to and committed to that get them to net zero, part of that process it seems to me legitimately could be uh, investing in protecting and restoring the natural world. And as you say, I, I can't think of any other way of raising the kind of money we're going to need to turn things around. Public money is fantastic, but it's a drop in the ocean. Philanthropic money is magnificent. We saw a real game-changing in intervention, people like Jeff Bezos at, at, at COP. But, but even that's a, a drop in the ocean. Exactly. So we need, we're going to have to mobilize finance a, a drop in the sources forest. as well. <laughs> drop in the forest, a leaf in the forest. A needle, needle in the forest. A leaf in the forest. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> but it, so, so it's, it's got to happen and we've got to make it work and we've just got to make sure that it really is high integrity and it's up to us governments and businesses and so on to make sure that the corners aren't cut. And, and there's no reason why they should be. Yeah. Minister, you, you made a point earlier, which is that, you know, we thought this year we just had was the critical year to move the needle. And it turns out it was. But it's also the year that we're just about to have is is as important or more important. And with this momentum now of the work that you and others have done of integrating forests into the climate agenda, we've got this fascinating year that incorporates the conventional biological diversity in Kunming, as well as 
the provision in the COP decision out of Glasgow that countries should come back and make more mm. commitments to close the gap to 1.5. Now, in both of those, obviously, forest and land use play crucial roles. So I'd just love to hear you talk for a few minutes about the road ahead and what you'd like to see in the next 12 months. Yeah, I think, first of all, that's crucial. Um, and 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 just, just before I move for lose it, that, that ratchet system that you alluded to, this, this come, back, come mm. back in a year's time with better NDCs, I think that was underreported, but hugely important. It, it, hugely and, and it really yeah. strengthens our arm. It gives us a mandate as a country, as the president mm. for this year, to go out to countries and say, great, thank you, now we need more. And one of the things now, that now, we need Minister, to do... Now, Minister, sorry, I have to tell you that we have been giving it a lot of attention because the fact that the ratchet that. mechanism has been ratcheted up is excellent, right? It's really excellent yeah. and yeah. is one yeah. of the central, central points of success of COP26. I, I can't imagine what we would have had without that. Well, it, uh, look, I agree. And, and it gives me, for example, you know, my, my role in all this is mostly around the nature, land use, forests, and so on. I, I'm a sort of self-appointed role in a sense, because this is my passion. But luckily, I got the green light from government. One of the things that I want to do with that ratchet mechanism is to try to get those nature commitments that were made on, on the World Leaders Summit around forests um, and deforestation by the end of the decade, get that into countries' NDCs, give it a level of formality that yeah. it currently doesn't Excellent. have. So, exactly. And, and, so, so that will be a big part of it. But, but the question goes beyond the ratchet mechanism or even Egypt next year. There, there are lots of things happening this year. You've got the CBD hosted in Kunming. You've got UNEA, uh, where there are, you know, we've got big ambitions. There's a, a big focus on the oceans, uh, the US and Palau and France. There are lots of big events and big moments this year, each one of which we need to use as well as we can to build on that momentum. And in each of the nature commitments that we got at COP, the finance from public sector, to finance in the private sector, the financial institution commitments, the commodity buys, etc. I am working with really superb people in the UK government, people from all departments of government, but the best of the civil service, and figuring out what we what is the best thing we can do, what's the most effective thing we can do to ensure that each of those commitments has a, a accountability injected right through it, uh, that a pathway is set for us and for those who signed up to these commitments between now and the end of next year. Or November next year, um, and this will be the this will be the the totality of our job for the next twelve months, making real the commitments that we got, ramping those commitments up, giving them a formality through NDCs that they currently lack, but really tackling that very first question that was put to me about trust. We want to demonstrate that this is not greenwash, that these aren't just box ticking exercises. This is real, uh, and that by the end of the year, I hope that we'll have hadn't done enough, secured enough, and been able to present enough that people will recognize that we are actually at a turning point because it must be i love that and i love the, i love the integration with ndcs that's essential mm. and that's great you're going to focus on that i know paul wants to come in a minute but just i'd love to just hear a couple of words from you on kunming as well the convention on biological diversity meeting there obviously a big moment in terms of the nature agenda what would you like to see out of that cbd meeting for the post 2020 framework well, I'm first thrilled that you're answering, asking the question because it it, do, it lacks the the profile that, that climate cops hmm. have, uh, and and it shouldn't. But it's no less important. Um, I, I mm. mean, it's it is equally important, uh, and in some respects, you could even say more important. So we and obviously we're not hosts, so there's the, you know, we can't direct it in the way that we directed the run up to the climate cop. But we ha through our presidency of the climate cop have, I think, the ability to build on the momentum that we have secured in the run up to the climate. 
climate cops. So there are alliances of ambition, countries like Costa Rica, Gabon, Colombia, the obvious countries that really are front runners, chomping at the bit, real ambition. Countries within Europe, France, for example, has a big interest, always has in biodiversity, Germany, Norway, uh, South Korea, uh, fantastic interventions that they made around nature in the context of COP. So our, 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 our program is to build upon those coalitions and try and divvy up the task of raising ambition from the less excitable, the slightly more reluctant countries, with a view that when we get to Kunming, there is already a pre-fabricated appetite for the highest ambition that we can deliver. Now, I don't know what that's going to look like yet. It's very hard to tell. Uh, you know, we're not in the driving seat. We're sort of creating our own vehicle that we can drive. And one of the things that we know we need to do, uh, if we want to get the highest ambition from the high biodiversity countries, which are often not the wealthiest countries, is to deliver finance. And, and just as we delivered a big commitments around finance at the climate COP for forests, we need biodiversity finance as well. And, and uh, I, there's no reason that we can see, or that I can see, that we wouldn't be able to deliver the same sort of level of finance, just to show real willingness on the part of donor countries, but also the private sector. And I hope that too will enable some of those countries to go a bit further than perhaps they would otherwise be willing to go. But there's a huge amount of diplomacy to be done. And, and you know, I've been spent the last few weeks reconnecting with our allies. I was very lucky to see uh, John Kerry a couple of days ago uh, to talk specifically about how we can divvy up this task, how we can use him to persuade those countries and private sector players that, that he's best placed to talk to, what we're going to bring to the table. And, and we, even though the US is not a formal signatory to the CBD, they will be very clearly a, an active participant. And that matters to us. They're hugely important. Yeah, fantastic. So, Minister, this um, diplomacy is actually exactly what I wanted to ask you about, um, because there's something very interesting going on. I mean, if we if we look in the history books, people would talk about statesmen, rather unfortunate genderized. Let's call them statespeople. But, you know, you're a, a UK government minister, but you're clearly operating on a global stage. And you've mm. said some fascinating things. You've talked about, for example, the need for private sector finance to be involved. You've talked about... Um, critical partnership with the 12 biggest buyers of uh, products driving deforestation. You've talked about science-based targets and high integrity. How do you see this playing out? Because we're at a sort of new nexus, aren't we, between national governments, global corporations, global investors. How would you like to see that, you know, um, build a positive feedback loop and become stronger partnership? over time? Well, I, I look, this is clearly, it is a global challenge. And, and of course, there's a lot we need to do in the UK to, to, to have authority. And that means getting our own house in order. And we are, I think, taking big bites out of the problem. We've got a long way to go. But, but fundamentally, it is about those global partnerships. And on a government-to-government -government scale, you know, there are phenomenally important partners out there. I mentioned Colombia earlier. And President Duque is a, is a passionate nature lover. He understands that, that Colombia's wealth lies in its natural uh, capital, that you know, he, he talks about Colombia as a, as a, a nature superpower. Uh, and that, that's exactly what it is. And in talking to other countries in that hugely important region, quite often we have done so through 
through President Duque. And he, is, he has done an enormous amount of heavy lifting and diplomacy on behalf of the COP presidency. And we, we rely on him for that. Uh, and the same is true in other parts. Gabon, you know, President Bongo is, I think, a, a world leader when it comes to recognizing the importance of nature and protecting what we ha- have and restoring what we've lost and working with other countries in that region to try and ramp up ambition. So there is an enormous amount of that happening. Uh, but in the pr- terms of the private sector, uh, what I am hoping we can do is to harness that that big signal that was delivered at COP by some really key players, including household name corporations, big financial institutions, uh, and of course, the multilateral development banks, slightly different category, but it's all private sector. And to try to create a sense of inevitable and unavoidable momentum so that mm-hmm. other companies that may not be the front runners, they may not be wildly excited by this agenda, recognize nevertheless that that is the direction of travel, unarguably, unavoidably. Uh, because fundamentally, the, you know, if you could summarize the challenge, the human challenge, uh, in, in some one goal, it's reconciling our economy with our natural world. That, that until those two are, are reconciled, we're finished. Until that hugely powerful engine, the market, is as it recognizes the value of nature, recognizes the cost of its destruction, then it's going to continue to drive us towards the cliff edge. And, and so we can only solve that, answer that challenge or solve that problem by having a, a critical mass of the private sector on board. So that's a really important part of, of, of this year. It's trying to build on that momentum, use whatever friendships we have uh, in in the private sector and we do have friends you know there have been been some supersonic contributors to this process in the run-up to cop Uh, people and organizations who are willing to be very much part of this campaign and it is a campaign Um, and i hope that by the end of this coming year we will at least be approaching that critical mass because i think things can change incredibly quickly once you get to that point and we've seen that by the way i think in terms of the carbon the low carbon transition it's happening much faster than anyone predicted i mean solar 90 percent drop in costs since the credit since the banking crisis you know every prediction that we've used in the uk government um, or indeed through the european commission every prediction in relation to renewable energy take up in the uk is out by miles with the market's gone way further and faster than anyone had predicted and i think these kinds of changes profound though they are they can happen very quickly so i'm hoping that we will create that inevitability over the next few months as Christiana said at the start, there is a nervousness about that nature yeah. being kind of commingled with the market yeah. energy. And, and it's, it's a fascinating area that I think we're going to spend a lot more time working out and getting right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, look, I think that's exactly right. But but if... if um we talk a lot about the money, you know, huge sums of money that are going to be needed to turn the tide. But a lot of it's not new money. So, I mean, you take agricultural subsidies, for example. Every year, the top 50 food producing countries spend around $700 billion subsidizing often highly destructive land use. So, it, you know, if the scientists always say, well, it's going to cost around $700 billion a year, coincidentally, that's the figure that, that, that they often cite. Well, well, let's use that existing $700 billion. Instead of having it invested in destruction, let's shift it so that it's invested in renewal. It's not new money. It's money that already exists, but it is not being invested in the common good, and it could be. So that's a big part of the campaign as well. And that's just one example. A lot of it's about just moving, mobilizing existing flows of finance in a different direction. And I think when you put it like that, it's less overwhelming, less awe-inspiring. Mm, this isn't, you yeah. know, if I say to you, you know, we're going to have to go out and find 700 billion, you know, you might wince, but we don't. We just need to make better use of what we've got. 
Well, it may be less overwhelming, but it is still inspiring, definitely, because uh, it's such a clear vision and the mobilization of everyone toward that vision is exactly what uh, what we need to do now um, as as we return from our end of the year holidays. Um, And uh, we actually have to come to a close to respect your timing. Thank you again for joining us. And so as we do, I just wondered... Um, in this, I think, very hopeful and optimistic vision that you have of what can be done, in fact, over the next 12 months. What are you frankly and honestly still concerned about? And what are you most excited or optimistic about? I'm excited principally that we got a lot more secured in the run-up to COP than I ever thought was possible. Um, and it, it, even in the last year, if I compare the conversations I was having at the beginning with the kinds of speeches we were hearing from world leaders on the day itself, there was a it was a, a, a tectonic movement. And that gives me real hope. So that's where my optimism comes from. My, my I'm, 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 however, uh, uh, full of trepidation about the challenge over the next year, because we really have so much heavy lifting to do. And I say we, not just the UK government, of course, you and all our associates and everyone that we've been talking to and working with over the recent months. We've got an enormous amount of work to do and we've just got to build up and we've got to keep that momentum. And, you know, I think the UK government has resisted that temptation to say, you know, tick, job done, good conference, move on. Yes, indeed. Um, I think we have been a, yeah, well, it's it, that was a concern of mine, I have to admit, but we are, the, the, that that expert, that brilliance that I just was alluding to earlier, we, we've protected that infrastructure, that cross-departmental infrastructure, the brightest and the best, um, and there will be no letter over the years. So that that is really reassuring to me, and it makes me feel that we can, we can really move this 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 mountain that we need to move um, significantly over the next 12 months. Well, it's reassuring to all of us actually to hear that. So thank you very much for for staying there on the on the rudder. Um, Lord Zach Goldsmith, thank you so much for sharing some time with us here on Outrage and Optimism on very, very hectic days. Um, we really appreciate it. And we will probably be knocking on your door again, maybe halfway through the year, just to get a sense of where we are on all of these very impressive challenges. Anytime. Thank you so much for your time. And thank you more importantly for what you do and have done. One of the great heroes, not the only one on this call either. So thank you all very much indeed for the brilliant work that you're all doing. And let's speak again soon. We're all on the same team here. All on the same team. We are. Thank you. Absolutely. Goodbye and happy holidays. Bye for now. Bye. Thanks all. So great to get to sit and chat with Zach uh, just a couple of weeks after COP and hear his reflections on what came out of it. What did you both leave that with? Look, I'm I'm hugely impressed by uh, his work. Um, you know, you can feel his energy when he talks and, and his commitment and his focus. I mean, he he's actually, I was researching some of the things he's been saying. He he agrees with my uh, my new obsession. He says, you know, we've got to have uh, laws that reflect the total dependence we have on the natural world. We need money, law and taxes. Government can create the framework. Government can set the rules. But I, I think with politicians like him around, um, we can get this done. But let's just remember everybody what this getting this done means it means seven percent reductions a year from now to 2030 and with covid and all of that we got a six percent reduction for one year so we are talking about 
absolutely radical action. And uh, I, I think that I just love the dynamism that Zach had that made me believe that uh, people like him can get us there. You know, I've been thinking how lucky, blessed, privileged, whatever word you want to use, we were that the UK COP presidency had someone like Zach Goldsmith that has the political clout and standing both within the UK government as well as outside to have really railroaded this agenda through the way it needed it. Because honestly, if I compare to other, let's say, ministers of state who are responsible for these issues in other countries, they tend to be Cinderella's in the cabinet. They tend to be, you know, one of the weakest ministers of state in all cabinets. And most people don't pay much attention. And if we had had that kind of leadership in the UK COP presidency, we probably wouldn't have been able to harvest the results that we did. So I am just hugely grateful for, for his lifelong work, but also for having focused it so clearly on the global challenge that, that we had at COP26. I just, you know, yeah. thank you, universe. Thank you, universe, that he was there at that moment in time and that he chose, because he didn't have to, that he chose to use and focus his political clout, his understanding, his knowledge uh, to mobilize so much international support. Yeah. I think that's it's such a great point, Dad, actually, because, you know, Zach has a certain, like everybody does, right, a certain store of political capital that he can choose how he deploys. And his comes, you know, from all sorts of places, but not least from, you know, his privileged background and the life that he's lived, the fact that he knows the prime minister. And and you can have all kinds of views about that, and, and people do. But what's interesting is he's chosen to use that position, that privilege and that political access to make the world a better place. And to deploy mm -hmm. it in the in the single-minded focus in the protection of wild places that he loves and the restore restoration of degraded land. And I have to say, sort of being to some degree on the front lines of this with the Bezos Earth Fund role that I've got and a couple of other things, I was amazed at how Zach would roll up his sleeves and get involved. I mean, his team was small, him and Tom Clements, the person, you know, his advisor who works on this, and they were just all over this agenda. They were calling people, they were making stuff happen. They were 100% focused on it in a way that you don't always see from people in leadership. So I would completely echo what you and just said. And they didn't have to, They didn't right? have to. They right. didn't have yeah. to. This was, this was absolutely came from such a deep place inside of him. Yeah. Um, you know, thank heavens. Yeah. I don't know who we thank, the universe, the heavens, I don't know, somebody. But thank you. Gratitude not, to yeah, the universe. Not Boris. We don't need to thank Boris, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway. Well, I mean, you know, he, he's a, a, a politician and, and the, you know, politicians are important. Government laws are important. Who? I'm just thinking back through the year. Who else have we had on who's a politician? What about the wonderful... Gina McCarthy. Do you remember we had her just as she oh, yeah, was coming from, in? From a car park, yeah. No, she was driving to Washington, D.C. to take on her role at the EPA and stops a car and allows us to do an interview on Outrage and Optimism. What a privilege. And then also, by the way, what this year, what about the privilege of, of hearing from Johan Rockström and us turning in, like, 
pivoting away from just promoting the nation of Costa Rica to promoting the incredible <laughs> Netflix documentary Breaking the Boundaries. Or I think we were kind of promoting them both. It was it was a dual promotion without a dollar passing either way, I have to say. Um but then also, what about the incredible Dame Ellen MacArthur, who we interviewed this year? What an extraordinary human she is in her amazing achievements. And then I would also just, point to Enrique Sala, actually, particularly focused on today, because that was also a beautiful piece on nature. Mm. You know, what he's done to restore oceans. I'd recommend people to listen to that one. Enrique Sala, founder of Pristine Seas. Founder of what? Pristine Seas. Did you not listen to the episode, Paul? <laughs> I did, but but just just for the people who didn't listen to the episode, for people who didn't before you laugh too much, Christine, I forget it. And for people who didn't listen to the episode, Chris, uh, Tom, would you like to explain what, what Christine's Bees is? <laughs> Pristine Seas is in a global attempt to preserve marine environments. There you go. Uh, and very important it is too. The two others I was going to mention, one is the... Interview. We've interviewed three, I think, um, oil company uh, chief executives um, from BP Occidental and also Ben Van Burden from Shell. And they've been very controversial and we've received a lot of um, heat around those. Um, so that's interesting to notice the, uh, the tension and the charge there is there. But then just at the other end where I think we can be pleased or proud, I've been delighted to be in learning myself and helping others uh, is some of our deep dives into things like the future of shipping and the future of urban transport. And I'm extremely excited that next year we're going to, can you say a deep dive into food? It sounds like a really weird thing to say, but we're going to do a much deeper exploration of food and the food system next year. So that's something I'm looking forward to. Hmm. Yeah, I also wanted to um, point out Sarah Thomas, our wonderful um, executive producer here on the podcast, reminded us that I was speechless uh, during the interview with Professor Dr. Johan Brockstrom when he very clearly laid out the dangerous territory that we're in of having already breached several thresholds. And I, I do remember, I remember that moment. I remember where, you know, the pain from way down in the bottom of my stomach went like, holy shit, holy shit. Um, do you remember that episode? Yeah, that was very, our very, very first this yeah. year. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of like, you know, the earth is ill and he was like the doctor and it was like the visit where you got the kind of the information. Yeah, that it, you... it felt like there'd been a diagnosis of being really ill. It really landed with me for sure. Mm. Yeah. No. But on the plus side, um, so much energy and excitement from so many different people and you know, in a way, I, I think it's it's all falling apart just at the same time as it's all coming together. And that's what's <laughs> that's why it's kind of all all to play for. But I think when you look back from the start of the year and what we were saying to now, there is an arc. You can call it progress. It might be that we missed the target. It might be the tree that is just the right size at whatever size it is as it grows. And yeah. you know, time for us to tech stock for those of us certainly in the northern hemisphere and other places that celebrate at this time of year the fact that it's dark and cold but it will change yeah well we have certainly enjoyed um doing this podcast for another year thank you so much for joining hey, us and for, for listening. listening uh it's a huge pleasure and privilege to do this work and we so appreciate doing it with you and we are now of course entering into another 
crucial year in the most decisive decade. There seems to be a whole string of them that we're going through at the moment, but next year is certainly going to be... Decades yeah. do have 10 years, Tom. Decades yes, do. thank you. Well, I keep hoping we'll reach a year and say, okay, it's done now. We can just forget about the rest of the year, but yeah, the rest yes. of the decade. It's 2029 and we've got to have like a 97% reduction in one year. No, no, no let's make sure that doesn't <laughs> let's happen. Let's not get to right? that point. Um, no. Okay, well, so thank you very much. Have a wonderful break over the holidays. Those who celebrate Christmas, enjoy Christmas. If you celebrate the solstice, enjoy that. Uh, Hanukkah, whatever it may be. Uh, hope you have a great break and look forward to seeing you refreshed in 2022. We're bringing you music as ever. As I said, we celebrate all of these. When are we back, Tom? We're back in February, is that We're correct? back in February. Absolutely right, Paul. On my, you know, Finger on the pulse as ever. We're taking a break in January and uh, we will be back with you. Uh, there may be a couple of bonus episodes in January, uh, but we will be back with regular uh, podcasts from the beginning of February, February the 3rd. So uh, look forward to being with you then. Uh, I will be enjoying some time with Christiana over in Costa Rica over the new year with my family. We'll be out there for a bit. So maybe we will uh, be recording from there. But for now, we're leaving you with a piece of music. And uh, this week, it's very seasonal. It's by Callum Beatty with his single, It's Christmas. So please enjoy this. Thanks as ever for listening this year. And we look forward to seeing you next year. Goodbye, friends. Bye. Bye. Hi, this is Callum Beatty. I'm really happy to be supporting the Global Optimism podcast. Here's an exclusive version of my new single, It's Christmas. It's Christmas in New York and California. It's Christmas. In Robert's sleeping bag It's Christmas On the sofa sipping sherry And it's Christmas Cause you said you're coming back It's Christmas At the neighbors you never speak to And it's Christmas for a sailor stuck at sea And it's Christmas Down the local supermarket And it's Christmas Cause you sat here next to me So turn on your lights Make them bright Glowing halfway around the world let your heart reignite Cause you'll never be alone in sand or snow It's with you everywhere you go And it's Christmas wherever you call home Driving through the dead streets And it's Christmas Running down a hospital wing Oh, and it's Christmas Handcuffed in a police station And it's Christmas Round the piano where we sing 
you'll never be alone in sand or snow it's with you everywhere you go and it's Christmas whatever you call Christmas whatever you call home it's Christmas whatever you call home it's Christmas So there you go, another episode of Outrage and Optimism. I'm Clay, producer of the podcast. That was Callum Beatty with It's Christmas. Callum is raising money for Steps to Hope, an organization committed to helping homeless people in Edinburgh. Um, They run hot food services five nights a week, as well as provide accommodation and support for those who are on a recovery journey. So as we're closing shop for the year, going home to be with friends and family, could I ask you to please consider donating to Steps to Hope? I've got a link for you in the show notes to donate directly to them. I was reflecting on Callum's words in the song, Christmas is wherever you call home, and it's so important that we financially support organizations like Steps to Hope because for some of our brothers and sisters who are homeless and struggling with addiction, home this year will be waiting for them at Steps to Hope. So, Thank you to Callum Beatty for the tune and bringing our awareness to this amazing organization, the work they're doing. And thank you to our listeners for donating. It makes a positive difference in people's lives. So thank you. Okay, thank you to the right honorable Lord Zach Goldsmith for joining us on our last episode of the year. If we're handing out awards, uh, Lord Goldsmith wins the best Zoom background of the year. He's got this amazing print of a forest that you just, you know, when you're on a Zoom with him, you just kind of believe he's in a forest when he's talking to you. And uh, you can see it on our social media posts with footage from the episode. Kind of puts my background to shame, so I got to step it up this uh, next year. So thank you to Lord Goldsmith. All right. Our entire podcast production team at Global Optimism has humbly worked in the background all season without a single mention from me in the credits and, you know, didn't complain once. This podcast that you tune in for every week is not possible without their tireless involvement and, you know, like, remember all those COP26 episodes? Yeah, it's a team over here making shit happen. I can swear, right? Christiana did. But I'm going to censor myself because my mom listens to this. Hi, mom. Sorry, mom. So our team members deserve a thank you. So thank you to Marina Mancilla Herman, Lara Richardson, Sarah Law, Katie Bradford, Zoe Cholak Antich, Freya Newman, Sophie Baggett, Fabio Scafidi Argentina, and introducing our new executive producer. Executive producer. Sarah Thomas. Thanks, team. 
And we all get by with a little help from our friends. Who could forget our good friend, Dan the Big DC Curtis, who stepped in the season and helped us keep the show on the road. And while we're at it, our hosts who led us through it all are Cristiana Figueres, Tom Rivet Karnak, and Paul Dickinson. A happy holidays to you all. And of course, we would be just shouting into the void if it wasn't for our dedicated listeners. And that's you. Thank you for engaging with us each step of the way as we strive to co-create a better world together and do a podcast at the same time. I mean, I say this all the time. I get to work on a podcast. A podcast. So endless gratitude to you all for listening and happy holidays. Happy New Year. If you enjoyed this season, please leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts and be sure to hit subscribe because we'll be right back here in your feed in the new year. Join us, won't you? Get some rest, enjoy the break, and we'll see you in the new year. Bye.